Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth. And somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite history, philosophy, mythology, and how those subjects bubble up into our popular storytelling podcast. As always, I am very tremendously excitedly excited for this Midnight Myth episode. We're continuing our Harry Potter rewatch and discussion. We are now at the Half-Blood Prince. This is the installment before the final installment in The Deathly Hallows. We got a ton going on with this movie. Feeling really stoked about talking about it today. Don't want to waste too much time because we have so much to get to with The Half-Blood Prince. But uh, how you doing, Laurel? Feeling great. Feeling like I just downed a bottle of liquid luck and I'm ready to do this episode. This is uh, this is one I've been waiting for really, really anticipatorily. I've been excited to do. So yeah, I'm, I'm happy that we're here. Yeah, absolutely. I can say that, you know, when I first saw the Half-Blood Prince, the movie, I just thought it was okay. I didn't really love it. It's one that over time I've come to love more. It's easily one of my favorite books, if not my favorite of the books. So I'm really excited to talk about. There's so much going on in this one and it does feel very different from all of the other Harry Potter movies. Um, It feels like it is rather unique. All things that we're going to get to what we think of and why we think this movie does what it does. But before we get too deep into it and roll up our sleeves and get to work, Laurel, do your thing. Yeah. So my thing is just we would love to hear from you. The conversation never begins or ends here on the podcast. So please reach out to us if you have anything to share. You just want to say hi. We're on Twitter at The Midnight Myth. We're on Facebook and on Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. And we would love Love, love your feedback. Love to hear from you. You can also head to our website, midnightmyth.com for extra content, blogs, and links to our Patreon page and our merch store if you wanted to support us. Know that if you support us on Patreon, uh, your donations, your pledges for the months of November and December, uh, the duration of our Harry Potter series, are being donated to the Transgender Law Center. Uh, Because we all know J.K. Rowling, the author of the Harry Potter series, 
has outed herself as a transphobe, and we uh, want to make sure that our trans brothers and sisters and friends uh, know that we do not support her statements and that we support trans rights as human rights. Absolutely. Totally agree. So let's uh, let's get to it. Let's start this. Shall we begin with the briefest of brief recaps of Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince? Absolutely. Take it away. The movie starts with a bunch of Death Eaters causing violence against smuggles and kidnapping Ollivander from Ollivander's um, wand shop. And then it cuts to Harry Potter just getting a bite to eat at a diner. And we see through his reading of the Daily Prophet that Harry Potter is now up- publicly being questioned whether or not he is the chosen one the person there to defeat Voldemort. Dumbledore quickly comes and brings him to a muggle house where they meet Professor Slughorn. Professor Slughorn is disguised as a sofa and he shows Harry Potter his collection of students saying that anyone who's anyone wants to be in the Slughorn collection. It's then when the true reason that they are visiting Slughorn is revealed that Dumbledore wants to convince him to resume his post as the potion master. We learn that he has a valuable memory, one which will help Dumbledore and by extension Harry defeat Voldemort, but he has hidden this memory from Harry Potter. Uh, Dumbledore asks Harry to get close to Slughorn to let him collect him as a student, and then once in the Slug Club or collected by Slughorn to pump him for information about this memory. All of this is happening while Harry is starting to discover his romantic feelings for Ginny Weasley and the school year is kind of going out somewhat regularly. However, on the first day of potions class, Harry doesn't have a potion book and he discovers this book written by the Half-Blood Prince. This book ends up giving him lots of secret details, tips, spells, otherwise things that he would not know. And Harry finds himself excelling rapidly in potions, even called by Slughorn to the Prince of Potions. Meanwhile, Harry and Dumbledore are going through memories of Dumbledore's mind, trying to learn what they can learn of Tom Riddle as a child before he becomes Lord Voldemort. We see Tom Riddle in his orphanage, as well as we see Tom Riddle at a slug club party asking Slughorn something, but Slughorn refusing to give it. This is the modified memory that Henry or Harry, pardon me, must procure. Meanwhile, we have Quidditch tryouts. We have Ron and Lavender Brown with a young romance, much to her, her Hermione Granger's chagrin, as she's starting to learn her feelings for Ron are more romantic and less friend-oriented. Meanwhile, Harry Potter is convinced that Draco Malfoy has joined the Death Eaters and has had some sort of sinister plot having Harry stay up all night watching Draco disappear on the Marauder's map. Other strange things start happening. A student ends up getting cursed, and then they touch a cursed necklace and almost dies. And Ron, mistakenly eating candies left for Harry, comes the victim of a love potion, causing Harry to go back to Slughorn to ask for an antidote. And after this, they all drink a glass of mead, which was poisoned, and Ron almost dies. Meanwhile, Harry, no closer to figuring out what Draco is up to, no closer to figuring out Slughorn's secret, decides to take a potion that he earned in a contest in potions with the help of this mysterious half-blood prince called Felix Felices, in which he gains a sense of good luck. This has him go see Hagrid, he encounters Slughorn, and we see that the spider from the Chamber of Secrets, Aragog, is dead, and then... At a drinking table where Hagrid and Slughorn and Harry just hang around and sing songs, Harry finally confronts Slughorn 
encouraging him to be brave and gets the memory. This is where we learn that Slughorn had a hand in teaching Voldemort how to build a Holcrux, a device that which, if a wizard murders another wizard, a piece of their soul fractures and can be stored in an object so that if their body dies, you can use the Holcrux to resurrect Voldemort. We now realize that the um, there is a ring that was a Holcrux that Voldemort has. They don't explain it in the movie. They do in the books. As well as Tom Riddle's diary from the Chamber of Secrets, another callback, was a Holcrux. Harry asks Dumbledore, I'm sorry, Dumbledore asks Harry to accompany him to get another Holcrux, in which they go to this sort of desolate ocean place, and they pass through a series of trials. Dumbledore gives a blood sacrifice to a wall by cutting his own hand to gain entry. They cross a calm lake, and they encounter a potion that must be drunk. Harry force-feeds this potion down Dumbledore's throat as it's poisoning and wounding and hurting him until they get to the bottom where there's a Holcrux. Suddenly, a bunch of dead bodies pop out of the water and start to drown Harry when, when Dumbledore, I almost said Voldemort, summons a great ball of fire and saves Harry Potter and they apparate back to Hogwarts. It's at Hogwarts where we see the plan of Draco Malfoy come to fruition, Dumbledore being weakened gets disarmed and Draco is there and Draco has to kill Dumbledore. In this, way back in the beginning of the movie, Severus Snape promises Draco Malfoy's mother that he will help Draco in the job that the Dark Lord has tasked him to do, a job we don't know. And he makes a spell promise called the Unbreakable Vow that if he were to break, Severus Snape himself would die. Draco has confronted a weakened, disarmed Dumbledore, and through tears, Dumbledore tells him he knew a boy who made all the wrong choices and that Draco Malfoy is no assassin. Draco can't bring himself to use the killing curse against Dumbledore when other Death Eaters, such as Bellatrix Lestrange, end up being snuck in the castle through a vanishing cabinet in the Room of Requirement. They are surrounding Dumbledore when Severus Snape shows up Dumbledore looks him in the eyes and says, please, Severus, as Severus casts the killing curse. Dumbledore falls to his death. The movie ends with Harry, Ron, and Hermione sitting at the top of the tower and Harry admitting he can't go back to Hogwarts. The Hulcrux that they uncovered, the one that they risked so much that cost Dumbledore's life, is a fake with a mysterious note from someone named R.A.B., and Harry realizes that he has to hunt Horcruxes and he can no longer go to school next year. In which Hermione says, you know, we love you, Harry, but sometimes you're really thick and promises to go with him on the journey. And Snape is the half-blood prince. Oh, I forgot that. <laughs> Snape is, I'm like crying thinking yeah, about Dumbledore dying. Sorry, I'm getting all emotional. It's all good. I'm getting emotional too. Yeah, Snape admits that he is the half-blood prince. Uh, so all of the mysteries are solved, but we are no closer to defeating Voldemort at the end of it. Wonderful recap. Thank you so much for preparing that. Well done. You know, one interesting thing about this movie, as we see the progression, they all end on a little darker note. You know, so the first two end quite triumphantly. And then in Prisoner of Azkaban, they don't freeze serious, but at least there's a catharsis that Harry now knows what happens. Dumbledore knew what happened and Lupin knew what happened. And they knew that Sirius was a good person and an ally and a godfather, a proper father figure. 
for Harry to emulate and follow up on. Then we get to Goblet, which ends with the death of Cedric. Then we get to Order, which ends with the death of Sirius. But in both of those installments, Harry is triumphant and overcomes whatever obstacles are thrown at them. This is one that ends with not only the death of Dumbledore, but a failure to even secure the Holcrux. In this one, it ends in failure on so many levels and so many layers. And it is an interesting way to prep Harry for the battles to come. But just as a single installment, do you think this movie holds up? Uh, unequivocally, yes, on this one for me. Uh, while I do think the movie has some flaws and there are some choices that we'll talk about that are a little strange and confusing, uh, this, and I'm not going to make this commitment until we're done with like the full rewatch, but this is probably my favorite Harry Potter movie. I don't think it's better than Azkaban necessarily as a piece of cinema, but uh, this is the one that I enjoy rewatching the most. This is the one that I saw in the theaters at midnight when it came out. And then the next day I went to the same theater and caught the matinee. Uh, I was like, I, I can't get enough of it. And I still can't get enough of it. I think it's uh, a really, really exquisite film. Uh, and I don't know how many people really agree with me on this, but for me, the, uh, the strength of this installment uh, there are many of them, but it really relies on how uh, this is able to so nimbly uh, navigate the difference between some of the lightest material in the series, some of the funniest material in the series, and some of the absolute darkest material in the series. So you're talking about this like horribly grim ending, uh, and we've talked about futility for a few episodes now, how uh, the the endings get less and less triumphant, uh, how we we end this having lost Harry's final father figure, uh, with the exception of maybe Hagrid, uh, you know, this this powerhouse, this this character who is always there to protect Harry, who we always know that if Dumbledore's there, Harry is safe. Uh, he's no longer there. Like th leaving this film, leaving this book with that sense is really terrifying. And also knowing that we're about to head into an installment where they don't come back to Hogwarts is terrifying. Everything is about to change. But it's also like this movie's funny as hell. This movie is delightful. So I think it's incredible how well it's able to shift between tones how it's able to highlight uh, really unexpected performances, particularly from Daniel Radcliffe, who finally gets to flex his comedic muscles. I think Daniel Radcliffe is an outstanding comedic actor um, and, and really grows into his own, especially in this movie. Um, but you talked about the Felix Felicis segment where Harry goes to Hagrid's and gets the memory from Slughorn, and that's one that stands out in this movie for me as like, a microcosm of the strengths of the film. It's a kind of riotously funny scene. Uh, and then it slowly and carefully shifts into being a really touching, really heartbreaking, really, um, really moving sequence. And um, yeah, so I think it's, it's fantastic. Jim Broadbent as Slughorn gives maybe my favorite performance of the entire Harry Potter series here too. So yeah, that's my that's my thoughts. Yeah, I I agree with almost all of those thoughts 100%. When you have a movie that has 
whimsy, humor, action, and tragedy all in it. It is easy to have the movies feel thematically disjointed and emotionally nonsensical. There are movies out there where you're like, I just went from laughing, now I'm supposed to be crying, now I'm supposed to be on my edge of the seat suspense. I think there's a lot of, not to you know blast anything or anyone, I think there's a lot of Marvel movies that just don't know if the scene is silly, action-packed, or serious dramatic weight. So they just put it all in one scene and like hope that at the end it just comes out as a wash. What I like about these shifts in tone that we see in this one is that it at no point does it feel nonsensical. At no point does it feel like the tone um, shouldn't meet the moment and isn't characters naturally doing and acting what they should be. You mentioned when Harry takes Felix Felicis, when he is hopped up on luck juice, and that it's kind of silly, and then they come across Aragog, and Hagrid is genuinely sad, and Slughorn doesn't really understand that, but he takes it seriously and gives this rather absurd yeah. you know, <laughs> eulogy. Uh, eulogy for Aragog, but it's so touching to Hagrid that we are delighted about the whimsy and the silliness of it, but Hagrid is genuinely sad, and the way that then links to the scene where Hagrid and Slughorn are getting drunk, it makes sense. What do you do after a funeral? You have a few drinks. They've established that Slughorn likes to drink already like in this, so he has an excuse to get drunk. Yep, all hands on deck, Granger. And then in the end, we get one of the most touching emotional moments. It takes its time. It allows the fun to be the fun, the whimsy to be the whimsy, and it leads itself into the change of tone and that it never feels disjointed. It makes sense that at the end of this drinking session, Hagrid drinks too much and passes out, and Harry and Slughorn have to hash this out. They have to come to a conclusion. Harry needs to know what Slughorn taught or did not teach Voldemort, and Slughorn knows it, and he's got the luck charm. We as the audience know he's going to get it, and the way that they flesh it out, even though magic is involved. A magic potion is giving Harry the power yeah, to do it. it augments it, yeah. It still feels natural and organic, and I think it does that really well. It does also a really good job with lighting and changing the lighting for the tone and the mood. You know, when we see Goblet in Order, these movies are big, and they get bigger, and the world is expanded, and there's different places, and Harry has visions at all over the world, all over the Wizarding World, etc., this one gets smaller. Yeah. This one gets intimate. It gets tight. It's about these small group of characters. You've got Snape and Malfoy on one hand with a mystery we're trying to unravel. What is Malfoy up to? Whose side is Snape really on? And then on the other hand, we have Ron, Hermione, and Harry who are very much dealing with romantic feelings for each other as well as the pressure of figuring out these mysteries and the looming threat of Voldemort, but it's really intimate. The curse scenes are really intimate. The Quidditch is really intimate. Everything is about these individual characters, except for I've got one major complaint. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I know what you're going to say. Yeah. And that is the action set piece at, at Christmas when Bellatrix Lestrange comes and burns down the Weasley's home is a little weird to me it doesn't it it's not that this scene happens it's not in the books obviously but you know what my favorite scene in this whole thing is the the conversation about the fishbowl that slughorn has also not in the books yeah yeah 
but it just feels like this is a shoot in action piece that shouldn't be there. That ultimately doesn't matter. If the Death Eaters like know where the Weasleys are sleeping and they have no protection, what stopped Voldemort from just going there and killing Harry? But also, like they just cut the next scene to Hogwarts and everything is fine and Ron and Ginny are back at school and their house is burned down and they never mention it again. It's it's very much, it does feel like it's shoehorned in to give a little bit more action and a little bit more um, excitement to a, a movie that has a lot less plot going on than Order or Goblet and a lot less like physical action. Um, and I, I, yeah, I just don't think it's particularly successful. Yeah, it ratchets up the stakes, um, but it is really strange. I liked a lot of the things that you said just now, though, about how this movie kind of shrinks things back down to basics, back down to the relationships, because, again, we need to be reminded that, yes, this is about a big world. This is about an epic war. This is about the battle between good and evil, but it's also about three friends, uh, and it's also about one boy becoming a man and the mentors that shape him along the way. Uh, this is the film where we get the most intimate relationship and the most screen time between Harry and Dumbledore, uh, which I think is done to great effect um, and really just perfectly shows the relationship between these two, perfectly showcases the performances of Daniel Radcliffe and Michael Gambon, and perfectly prepares us for the departure of that character. Uh, you know, the scene in the cave where Harry is is forcing Dumbledore to drink this potion that is driving him out of his mind, doing so at Dumbledore's request and showing these, these really horrible things that we don't want to see Dumbledore, this pillar of strength, go through. We don't want to see him close his mouth and shake his head and say, stop trying to kill me. Like, that, that's horrible to watch. And that's horrible for Harry to go through. But it it gives us such a depth of this character where we can see uh, weakness and vulnerability on one end. And then later in the scene, the great and powerful, most greatest wizard of his age, Dumbledore, summoning that tower of fire to save Harry from the Inferi. Like, it's an incredible, uh, I, I think, breadth of these characters and their relationships that we get. Yeah, totally agree with all of that. One of the other things that when I meditate and I look back at this movie is that it is very much thematically about shame and how shame drives characters either in past or present or maybe how it will drive them in the future. So, for example, Malfoy is pretty much shamed into this plot because his father failed to procure the... the um, the prophecy in order yeah. of the Phoenix. So the family shame of failing the dark Lord brought Malfoy and he is now having to play the role of assassin, something that he is clearly not equipped for ready for, or meant to be because he can't end up going through with this plot as much as Malfoy is a spoiled racist little piece of crap. He's not evil. Yeah. He's not a killer. He's just not Evil in the Voldemort sense. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So he's bad and he's, he's not. still got a shot at redemption. Yeah. He's not someone that I'd want around our future kid, you know, playing with. But he's still not an assassin. He's still not good at it. His attempts to do it are so half-baked that they fail. And, Vault and Dumbledore even calls it out. So there's shame there. And then there's also this narrative of shame with Slughorn, who has a his vanity allowed him to fall prey 
to Voldemort and he gave Voldemort the secrets of the Holcrux, albeit when we watch it at first, it doesn't seem like a lot, but he gave Voldemort what he needed to go out and complete these seven Horcruxes, which then in turn guarantees the most evil wizard of all time is practically immortal. And he has to live with that shame and that guilt. And that causes him to want to retreat and hide into his memories to literally augment his past. And then, you know, we see in just some subtler ways, we see kids kissing and whether or not that's okay and some feeling ashamed to do it and that they shouldn't be able to do it. We feel people hiding their emotions and wanting to use potions and magic rather than confront. For example, Ron is an exceptional keeper at Quidditch. His problem is he doesn't believe that he can do it. So he had his, his shame and his guilt about being a bad, a potentially bad keeper makes him want to resign. And he has to be tricked into thinking he took an invincible luck potion to go out and do what he can just actually do. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I like how the mystery in this is driven by shame. We learn a little bit about Voldemort's past and Voldemort being ashamed of mortality and being ashamed of his parents. That's more in the books. But we get that he is a, even in the movies, we get that he is a not well child with secrets. You know, Dumbledore, 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 when he confronts young Tom Riddle, ends up shaming him for stealing, you know, and says thievery is not something that we can tolerate here at Hogwarts, which is still a good lesson, but still shame is a major theme there. And it's a theme that kind of permeates throughout this narrative. And it is one of the most tightest thematic narratives because it deals so much in shame. And it, you know, reminds you that no one, be them great or terrible, people of power, get there on their own. And that when you assist someone who ends up taking power and does terrible things with it, there is de- there's definitely mentors out there that are going to be and feel shame. I mean, there are mentors who help Donald Trump maybe not realizing he'd become who he became, but they might feel a, I mean, if he was my ex student, I'd feel a sense of shame. Yeah. And Dumbledore himself feels this, you know, Harry after the first memory is like, did you know, sir, then did I know that I just met the most dangerous dark wizard of all time? No. And then later when drinking the potion, we hear Dumbledore saying, it's all my fault. It's my fault. And he could be speaking directly to the responsibility that he feels for fostering the growth of Tom Riddle into Voldemort, or he could be thinking of something else that is revealed to us in the Deathly Hallows, which we'll probably talk about when we get there. Um, But on both Slughorn and uh, Dumbledore's part, there is this sense that they contributed to the development of this person. But then there's also this complication, the fact that this is Harry Potter, you know, and we keep coming back to this. It's about individual choice. It's about uh, offering people the opportunity to make their own decisions and to go the right way or to go the wrong way. Uh, So, while Slughorn and Dumbledore may feel this responsibility, they have to give that opportunity to the young Tom, right? They have to foster him. He's a talented, bright boy who deserves a chance. Just like Malfoy is a talented, bright boy who deserves a chance. Just like Harry is a talented, bright boy who deserves a chance. And we can't predict who these people will grow up to be. All we can do is try our best to steer them in the right direction. All we can do is try our best to give them the opportunity that they deserve just as a human being. And that's why when 
uh, Dumbledore and Malfoy are in the tower and confronting each other, we hear, I knew a boy who made all the wrong choices. Because it's not Dumbledore's fault. It's not Slughorn's fault. Yes, everyone who comes in contact with you has some role in your development, but it is ultimately Voldemort's choice to become the wizard that he becomes. Uh, and Malfoy is not at the end. It's not too late. It's not too late to make the right choice. Yeah, and you see how boxed in Malfoy gets. He gets so boxed in. His father is a Death Eater. His father failed Voldemort. He got arrested. His family has been ashamed by the wizarding community, by the dark wizarding community as well. And here it is, and what he says is like, I have to do this or he's going to kill me. And he feels like he has absolutely no choice and nowhere to turn. And that's valid. Like, that's really, really valid. And that's an experience that a lot of us feel when we're at that age, even if we're not literally being told that we'll be murdered by a Dark Lord. Sometimes we feel like there's no way out. Yeah, so we agree. The movie holds up. Yeah. <laughs> we kind of went on a tangent there. <laughs> It definitely holds it's, up. It's, it's hard a good, not to. It's a good movie. Yeah, there's so, so much to mine. It's so rich. Um, we've talked a lot about the performance of Jim uh, Broadband, Daniel Radcliffe. I just want to give a, just another shout out to my man, Alan Rickman. Alan Rickman, just like, just giving it in every scene. We also, uh, Derek and I have been watching, we just finished like every available episode of Peaky Blinders on Netflix in like, two weeks time. We just blew through that series and Helen McCrory is in it. And she's in five minutes of this movie as Narcissa Malfoy. And it's five excruciatingly gorgeous minutes. Like she's outstanding. I, I just love every second that she's on screen. Yeah. This movie really allows scenes time to breathe. Yeah. Something that order didn't do. It's ready to like take its time with the scenes and get into the vulnerability and the ugliness in a way that order wasn't. And I'm so glad that Steve Clovis is back on board writing. Yeah, I totally, totally agree. It really, really does. These scenes feel like scenes. You feel there. You feel the textures, the layers. Every scene is just so good. Yeah, this is definitely one of my favorite movies so let's turn our eye to some of our Midnight Myth analysis. What's really happening under the surface here? I mean, there's a lot going on in this movie, though not as crazy from a plot perspective. Certainly a lot going on with the characters. A lot of symbolism in this movie that we can unpack um, from funeral rites to collection to potions yeah to the ability to brew and boil love to infatuation like wh where where would you like to begin so uh I, i've been excited to get to this one because i get to get into a little bit of world folklore that we don't always touch but i want to start by talking about the concept of the horcrux because one of the things we've been doing with a lot of these episodes is kind of tracking artifacts uh, and where they find their antecedents in mythology and what the uh, sort of evolution of that mythological uh, origin is into the more modern and contemporary Harry Potter universe. So I want to talk about the idea of the Horcrux, where that finds its origins in folklore and mythology, if that's cool with you. I love it. Let's do it. So the idea of an external soul is uh, actually a really popular motif in folklore, fairy tale, and mythology. There are tales from all over Europe and Asia that feature 
uh, characters who make themselves immortal or invulnerable by taking their soul and storing it outside of their body, something that we learn uh, Voldemort has done uh, through the process of this movie. Some of the most popular stories of external souls come from Russian fairy tales uh, concerned with a character named Kashi the Deathless, uh, or Kashi the Immortal. He was a classic villain of Russian folklore, best known for kidnapping young women and princesses and trying to make them love him. So uh, whenever I think of him, I think of the Ice King from Adventure Time because he also loves kidnapping princesses to try to make them love him. Uh, and he's called the Deathless or the Immortal because he cannot be killed. Uh, but in a classic story called The Death of Kashi the Deathless, our hero is named Ivan, uh, in Russian tales, our hero is often named Ivan, and sometimes they're the same Ivan, and sometimes they're different Ivans. Just think of them as the archetypal, brave, chivalrous hero, Harry Potter type. Uh, he marries a princess named Maria Marevna, who happens to be a badass warrior. So she leaves to go to battle and warns her husband not to look in the dungeons while she's away. Unable to contain his curiosity, Ivan looks in the dungeons and finds a prisoner there, and it's the evil Kashi the Deathless, but he's emaciated and starving, so Ivan takes pity on the stranger and brings him water, which revives him to full strength, and he escapes. Kashi kidnaps Maria Marevna, Ivan's wife, and runs off with her, so Ivan has to go and save his wife. Things get a little strange here because it's Russian fairy tales and things will always get a little bit strange. Ivan goes after Kashi, trying to rescue his wife, but Kashi kills him. Then Ivan's three sisters show up with their husbands, who happen to be powerful wizards, and they resurrect Ivan. Ivan then learns that he has to go and get a magic horse from Baba Yaga, who's the witch from Slavic folklore, which he does, and then he goes into battle with Kashi and kills the immortal Kashi the Deathless. He gets the girl, he gets reunited with his sisters, and they all live happily ever after. Yay! Why am I telling this story? It's possible that you already noticed some parallels to Harry Potter in events that mirror what's already happened and what's to come. The revival of a weakened immortal dark lord uh, at the hands of the hero. That happened at the end of Goblet of Fire when Harry's blood was the tool that was able to resurrect Voldemort. And then the death and resurrection of the hero is something that we will see in the future. But while this version of the tale, probably the most famous one, doesn't go into the details, most variations on the Kashi story set up a very specific condition for his death. Kashi has made himself immortal by removing his soul from his body, nesting it inside a needle, inside an egg, inside a duck, inside a rabbit, inside a chest, buried under an oak tree, on an island. So if you get into battle with Kashi, you're not going to be able to kill him unless you know where that chest is and you know how to get to his soul all the way inside. So you'd have to discover this external soul and destroy it, thereby leaving the immortal one vulnerable to attack. Like I said, it's not the only external soul story. There's a Norse tale known as the giant with no heart in his body that's very similar, and stories across Indo-European cultures with the same motif. There's a couple of really detailed chapters on this in James Fraser's The Golden Bough, which 
uh, is like a midnight myth text if there ever was one. It's like between that and the hero with a thousand faces, they're the comparative mythology, here's why we all tell the same stories kinds of texts. Uh, but usually the, the soul is hidden within an inanimate object, uh, often an egg, or in some cases, a live animal. And in almost every version of the story, the secret of the immortal one's external soul is revealed through trickery or deception. It's usually a woman deceiving the immortal person into sharing his secret so that the hero can slay him. Uh, I just think it's interesting to reflect on the fact that this is something that is ancient and that is really, really widespread. The idea that one can make themselves invulnerable by removing the soul from the body. And of course, there are some ways that uh, Rowling has evolved that motif from the folklore. So normally in these stories, if you destroy the external soul, you just destroy Kashi or you destroy the giant. You, you kill the evil one because you've killed their soul. But in the Harry Potter world, the soul can be fractured into multiple pieces and a piece resides in the mortal body and the embodied person as well. So it's more like a series of things that you have to eliminate before you can take on the final boss, if you will. Yeah. What do you think? All right. So two follow-up questions for you. Yeah. What do you think ultimately it means to have the soul fragmented in order to achieve immortality? In other words, what's the cost of this dark magic? Yeah, well, and that's the other thing that Rowling introduces with the creation of the Horcrux is that it has to be achieved through a crime against nature, through this unnatural act of murder. Uh, so there is a piece of dark magic that you will have to do alongside uh, the taking of another life in order to split your soul, which is ultimately the most unnatural thing. Uh, what we have learned about Voldemort so far and about the young Tom Riddle is that his ultimate goal, like the true thing that motivates him is, I want to live forever. Like, I'm never going to die. Uh, he's terrified of, of death. He is longing to become the conqueror of death. And so he will go to any lengths to ensure that he is able to conquer that final end that we all meet. He's gone after unicorn blood. He has tried to uh, get the Sorcerer's Stone or the Philosopher's Stone. He's gone after all of these different um, versions of extension of life, but is even willing to cross as many like natural lines as possible to uh, create the, the conditions by which he is invulnerable. Yeah, I, I think that's largely correct. I, I tend to agree with you on that. I think of also the process of making the whole crux though we don't see the actual spell in action, it definitely makes me think of ritualistic human sacrifice. Yeah. Well, and that's a really interesting thing to uh, to bring up too, because in The Golden Bough by James Frazier, the second chapter that he has on this, after explaining all the times that it's used in different folklore across like Scotland and Hungary and Malaysia and Germany, et cetera, he does an entire chapter that's more from an anthropological uh, center where he discusses how uh, societies and cultures have uh, have used this concept or this motif of the external soul uh, as a ritual. So if you're sending a warrior into battle, you might perform some kind of ceremony that symbolically uh, places their soul into a ritual object to protect them from harm when they're in battle. So I think the comparison to ritual sacrifice is really apt. Yeah, because... 
how do you fracture your soul? You have to murder someone, but presumably, right? So Severus Snape murders Dumbledore. He didn't create a whole crux when he did it, yeah. right? So there's got to be more pieces to that puzzle yeah. in order to, ha- once that soul is fractured, in order to place that fractured soul into an object. So there has to be some like, I'm killing you to make a whole crux. Yeah, there's an intention, there are conditions. We're told in the book there's an incantation, but yeah, absolutely, it requires a certain set of conditions. And to me, that seems like I am sacrificing you so I can live. And so many ancient religious sacrifices were about spilling of blood, blood which was once you lose blood, you lose life. So ancient people intimately understood that blood and life were linked and that without blood, you couldn't have life. And so you spilled blood, e.g. you spilled life to get life renewed to you. And the Holcrux seems like a manifestation of that taken to its most perverse literal form. I'm going to sacrifice this human being in order so I can live forever. Yeah. And there's something too, I think, to the the fact that so many of the stories, so much of the folklore uses the egg as the storage uh, facility for the external soul, uses this symbol of life or this symbol of birth uh, as the like final thing you can use to to kill this unvulnerable person, but also like, that's where I store all of my potential. That's where I store all of my like non-embodied energy. I just think that's an interesting symbol there. Yeah, I totally do. It kind of reminds me with some stuff I wanted to talk about. Yeah. If you'll permit me a pivot. Of course, of course. Because one of the things that I really walked away from meditating on was how this movie and EG, the Harry Potter universe itself engages in the soul and the philosophy of the soul. This is the first time we really see um, the soul being an integral part of the story. However, there have been ghosts since day one, as well as in order of, I'm sorry, not in order of the Phoenix in Goblet of Fire, we see shades come out of Voldemort's wand. Yeah. And so this led me to want to kind of briefly discuss how does JK Rowling use the concept of the soul? Where is she getting that concept from? And what does this movie say about the soul and what kind of meditations that we can have, which ultimately comes down to the question of, you know, do humans actually have a soul or not? Yeah, which is a big question. Can of worms. Now, I'm going to frame this around, I'm going to use Western sources and Western sources only in this. However, there are different concepts of the soul at different areas of the world. There is complex and deep philosophy and theology in the East, as well as in the Native Americans and Pacific Islanders. There are two that I can think of off of the top of my head. However, I want to frame this within Western, not because I'm a biased pro-Westerner, though I definitely am. I mean, that's just truth. Uh, if I'm being honest. Yeah, you're just acknowledging what's there. Yeah. Who I am and yeah. what I am. I am what a, you've been most exposed to. Exactly. But it's also, I, I would say that of all of the things that um, Harry Potter is, it is unequivocally Western. Very, yeah. It is, it is a product of Western thinking, Western storytelling, Western folklore, Western mythology. So starting with the ghosts that we see and the shades that come out of Voldemort's wand in the Goblet of Fire, that feels very reminiscent of the first ideas of the soul that we see in ancient Greek literature, which come from Homer. 
And this is the idea that there, a soul is referenced in two ways in Homer, who wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey. So the first is something that you could lose in a battle. If you lost in the battle and you died, you lost your soul. So that's the first way that it's talked about. And the other way that it's talked about is it's the thing that when you die, that travels to the underworld right. and lives in the underworld. Now, these are not mutually exclusive ways to understand the soul. They could be linked, but they are used in two distinctly different ways in Homer. And these very much feel like how we have seen life after death up to this point pre uh, Half-Blood Prince. The ghosts feel very much like the ghosts that um, when Odysseus travels to the underworld that we see. They're not the real person, but an imprint of the person living a less than full existence. We see this echoed a little bit in the paintings who seem to have a little bit of the spark of the person, but yet are not that full person. They can move, they can talk, but they aren't actually technically alive. As well as we see this in the shards of humans that come out of Harry's battle in the Goblet of Fire. We don't see his parents for real. We don't see Cedric, but we see a little imprint of them left in magic to convey simple messages. And lastly, we see this represented a little bit in the Dementors, who are these sort of ghastly shades, not really fully living or dead that can move around. Now, the in the Homeric tradition, one of the lessons that Odysseus needs to learn when he travels to the underworld and speaks to Achilles, Tiresias, etc., is that life is better than death at all costs. Stay alive. This existence is rather pitiful. And that's how we get the introduction of the term the soul in Greek thinking and in Greek thought. But that's not where it was left off, because the Greeks invented philosophy. So starting from the Homeric tradition, philosophers started debating exactly what is a soul. So there was a philosopher um, named Thales of Melitidas who did many things. He predicted a solar eclipse when a bunch of people said, by the way, philosophy can't do anything useful. And he said, okay, on this day there'll be an eclipse. And there was just simply by observing the movements of the heavens. Um, and so Thales started theorizing that everything that is animate that has movement must have something in it which causes the movement. And Thales used the example of a magnet. A magnet is insold because it has some form of life to it. So the distinction is animate, soul, or insold, inanimate, non-sold. So a rock doesn't have a soul in it because it doesn't move, but a magnet does. Human beings move, hence human beings must have a soul. Then we start seeing two of my all-time favorite historians, Herodotus, who invented the term history, and Thucydides, both discussing the soul as equivalent to human moral actions or virtues. Those who, for example, were brave, those who were courageous, those who could speak elegantly, who could lead men in times of strife and trouble, were, quote, strong of soul, versus those that were weak of soul, so this started linking the concept of the soul to someone's actions and abilities. The stronger one's soul, the more virtuous, more moral, more courageous, more statesmanly, more self-sacrificing, 
a weakness in soul, the more cowardly, backstabbing. For example, Peter Pettigrew in a Thucydian sense would be weakness of soul. Yeah, or Umbridge would be nearly soulless. Yeah. Versus uh, Lupin and Sirius Black, who would be strong of soul because they're able to face adversity and overcome it and not change who they are. All of these were sort of the precursors to the like moon landing of soul discussion. In Western thought, it was Plato who really advanced and brought in the idea of the soul. Friend of the pod, Plato. Friend of the pod, Plato. So in the um, dialogues of Phaedo's theories of the soul, and I might be saying that wrong, Phaedo's, I don't know, I don't speak ancient Greek. No worries. (laughs) This is where Socrates makes his argument about the soul. In case you're confused, Plato wrote the dialogues of Socrates. Plato was a student of Socrates who followed Socrates around and wrote down what he said. Some have theorized, and maybe quite accurately, that this is just Plato's writings. Yeah, Socrates, that Socrates maybe didn't exist. Or maybe didn't say these things. Yeah. There were only three sources confirming Socrates' existence, Plato being one of them, Xenophon being the other one, and Aristophanes being the third. And Aristophanes was a comic playwright, and he talked about Socrates in a satirical sense. So it could have been that he was making fun of Plato's imagined Socrates. But there are three sources, and I think that's enough to say that he probably lived. Probably, yeah. That's fair enough. You know, I I think it is. But some have argued that there was no actual Socrates. Who knows? What we do know is that in these dialogues, Socrates vis-a-vis Plato makes an argument for the existence of the soul, a very powerful argument, and it's called the affinity argument. It's worth noting, as I flesh out this argument, that uh, Socrates doesn't hang to this dogmatically and in different writings seems to walk it back at some point. But this is the basic idea of the rational thought around the existence of the soul. And it's about distinguishing two different types of things that exist in the world. Ultimately, the world can be bundled up into two things. Perceptible, that are composed of parts and subject to dissolution and and destruction. For example, the human body. We can perceive it. It has parts. It will dissolve. A Greek temple. We can perceive it. It has parts. It can dissolve. An airplane. Perceivable, composed of parts, and can dissolve. Then there are the other things that are not perceptible, but intelligible. And they can be grasped by thought. And they are not composed of parts and are exempt from dissolution and destruction. This is beauty. This is justice. Mm, okay. This is love. These are things that um, they will not dissolve. They cannot be destroyed, and there are not smaller parts in them. And they're not necessarily mutually exclusive. For example, I can perceive love in my relationship with my co-podcasting lovely wife. I can perceive love. Some people can fall in and out of love. But the concept of love itself is never going to go away. It cannot be destroyed, just as the concept of beauty and the concept of truth. And so Socrates would argue is the concept of the soul. In this framework, the soul is separate from the body and is released from the body upon the death of the body and that it is imperishable and it will live on post the body. Now, when Socrates was going around telling people this, it is notable that most people debating him doubted the actual existence of the soul. Though used by poets and historians and playwrights, 
many of the philosophers and statesmen of the time did not like the idea, according to Plato's writings, that there was a soul. And it was Plato who reintroduced this idea and gave it a strict form, something separate from the body, something that we can understand rationally. However, it was imperceivable, and hence it was non-perishable and would exist post when the body decays. Now, a fun fact about human and Western civilization, upon the conversion of the Roman imperial system into Christianity and the uh, decriminalization of Christianity and the codification of Christianity into a formal church, the primary um, theological and philosophical architects that designed this system were of the Neoplatonic school. So what was happening was post-Socrates, post-Plato, came this little unknown guy named Aristotle. I kid, we've all heard of Aristotle. And Aristotle established ancient philosophical thought henceforth and was considered the bridge beyond Socrates and was now the definitive voice and people would debate with and discuss, but Aristilian ideas were the predominant ideas and considered the highest ideas of the ancient world until in the late Roman Empire came the Neoplatonists who were reinvestigating the workings and writings of Plato and were arguing for a Platonic way of looking at the world. And it was the Neoplatonists who became the founders of the Christian church and brought with them Platonic notions of the soul. Can I jump in with one more fun fact too, if we're bringing up the the Neoplatonists, they also form a lot of the basis of the thought around alchemy and early esoteric tradition. So the Neoplatonists run through a lot of the veins that are very important to our discussions about Harry Potter. Go on. So Aristotle had some different ideas about the soul, but I'm not an expert on them because they aren't relevant because the idea of the soul that we're seeing articulated in this text, in the Half-Blood Prince, is the Neoplatonic and the Christian version of the soul. The idea that the soul is imperishable, it exists outside of and independent of the body, and in Harry Potter, it can be extracted and manipulated even while you are still alive. And it is an integral source of rejuvenated life and energy and can be used in the Harry Potter sense to reinvigorate the life of the body. But nevertheless, we see a sort of Homeric version of the the soul or the ghost or the shade in the previous text. And we see an evolution of that where the soul becomes an integral part to the human experience in Half-Blood. And we see that dark and evil magic can twist what the soul is and link the soul to earth rather than have the soul do what it should do in terms of natural law when you die, which is to go on to the next plane of existence. Presumably if you're Christian heaven, hell or purgatory. Yeah, I think that's amazing. And it, and it, of course, you know, the one to do this, the one to twist the intention of the soul, the one to twist the purpose of the soul is Voldemort. 
is the character whose name means flight from death, is the character who has uh, pushed magic to its limits and has done things that no one has ever done before. Uh, to our understanding, no one has ever made more than one Horcrux. It is such a rare piece of magic that it's not allowed to be taught. It is like redacted from uh, restricted texts in the library. And so you need a resource like Slughorn who is very knowledgeable about all kinds of magic to even shed a little bit of light on this. But Voldemort, Tom Riddle is so willing to push past the boundaries of what is natural, what is philosophically sound and what is morally sound that he will he will change the very nature of the soul itself. Yes, he sacrificed seven people so that he could yeah. maximize his opportunities for immortality, knowing full well that the soul is real and exists, and that the soul will exist outside of the body post-death, knowing that death is not final. Voldemort still so afraid of death and so wanting to conquer death, and so manifesting of the death anxiety ends up creating this perverted form of dark magic simply so he can dominate and control life. I mean, if we had definitive proof of the soul's existence in this world, that would change the paradigm of human nature. We would be a radically different society. The wizards have said proof. Yeah. And, and yet... Voldemort is still so crippled by the death anxiety. I said the death anxiety, that's a Freudian term. Sigmund Freud theorized that there were these prime motivators that exist in our subconscious. And one of them is the fact that we are one of, if not the only species in the universe that can contemplate their own mortality. We're born with the knowledge of our death. And that is in and of itself creates a sense of anxiety and a sense of fear Freud would argue that's where a lot of our theological and metaphysical and transcendental structures come from to cope with said anxiety. Right. He would argue the reason Socrates is, is sitting there trying to convince ancient Athenians that there's a soul, it's simply because of the idea that he, you know, like he knows he's going to die and needs to come to terms with it. And the easiest way to do it is to say, eh, it's only one part of another journey. That being stated, if we had the actual knowledge of the soul's existence, there would be no rational reason to fear death. Right. Because you don't actually die. A part of you, the non-body part of you, moves on to the next plane, the next realm, and exists as a soul that's imperishable. Yet, despite knowing that Voldemort's anxiety over death is so strong that he comes to want to dominate all life. And it's not just his life. It's all life that he must dominate so that he can quelch this death anxiety. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's amazing. As you were speaking kind of about the distinction between the perishable and the imperishable, the perceptible and the imperceptible, uh, it occurred to me that there are other examples of uh, that kind of line that we see in the magical world that are expressed through Half-Blood Prince, like memory. I think it's really interesting that we spend a lot of time in the pensive in this one, and we we get a little bit more detail about the like tangibility and the manipulability, if that's if that's a word at all, of memory, um, which we have had just been previously introduced to in a very light sense in earlier installments. So we spend time reviewing memories of other people, reviewing memories of Dumbledore, of Slughorn, and seeing how one could even tamper 
with a memory, which is a tangible thing that you can share with someone and review in an objective way. Uh, I just think that's really interesting in the context of what you've been bringing up. Yeah, I mean, and that is a theme that's existed in a lot of these books, starting with The Chamber of Secrets, is how how are memories used and how can they be manipulated in order to tell a story that someone wants, someone of power, someone who's terrible, or someone who is ashamed or afraid. And we see that again here with the ability to walk into the memories of others and see what they're seeing. It airs a sense of objectivity to it. However, what we learn in this is that it can be very subjective. You know, that it can be very uh, much about who is perceiving what, where, and who, when. And it's not a just an objective recording of events. And we know that because Slughorn tampers with his memory, presumably he gave it to Dumbledore, and Dumbledore knows it's been tampered with and needs to get to the truth. Truth, which would be another imperishable idea that would exist, um, that does not have parts and cannot be decayed. But um, all that to be said is that I do think there are some interesting meditations about the philosophy of the soul happening. I don't think they're explicitly happening in Half-Blood Prince. I think they're implicitly. I think that Rowling is drawing from concepts of the soul as understood in a Western, Neoplatonic, and Christian sense and uses those concepts to a great advantage to not only highlight who the villain is and what the villain's willing to do and what the villain's goals ultimately are, they also neatly contrast Harry and Dumbledore's. In particular, Dumbledore, who we learn, we don't know at this point, but we will learn, is aware that he's a dead man walking yeah, and is not afraid. And I don't know how many times Harry Potter needs to walk into death's jaws and come out, but Harry Potter is someone who is willing to lay down his life for the cause. And that is the like ultimate core character difference that Dumbledore... Harry are deeply brave and are not motivated by fear. And Dumbledore, or pardon me, Voldemort at the core of it is someone who is deeply terrified and afraid. And that fear drives Voldemort to power. And that power is used to dominate because he is afraid. Yeah, no, that's so, so well said. And I want to thank you for bringing so much of this philosophy in, because I think watching this evolution from the, I mean, that really mirrors the like poetic Homeric uh, version of the soul into a, a more expansive and more philosophical bent on it is going to continue through Hallows. And it's something that we should keep our eye on. But uh, for me, that thing that you just said about the contrast between Voldemort and the more noble characters is another thing that's at the core of the series, but at the core of Half-Blood Prince in particular. This is very much a story about uh, foils about character foils who are uh, mirror images of each other, but made different choices. And there are so many pairings uh, that that illustrate this. There is Harry and Draco, who are so similar in so many ways, have so many similar circumstances, but have made different choices at every opportunity, and who could have been best friends. You know, never forget that. <laughs> that Draco Malfoy put out his hand and said, I can help you pick out the right friends. So Harry absolutely could have made that choice, 
but didn't. And we have seen them go different directions as a result of that particular difference. Uh, then there is the, the pairing of Harry and Snape as Harry is reading the Half-Blood Prince's book you know, and, and learning from this character that he does not know is Snape, that he does not know is one of his great arch rivals, but is feeling this incredible affinity with before he ends up cursing Draco with one of the prince's spells and realizes he's touching a darkness within himself that he's not entirely comfortable with. There's Dumbledore and Voldemort. There's Harry and Voldemort. There's Snape and Voldemort. There are so many of these incredible pairings Slughorn and Snape. Slughorn and Snape, the two potions masters. Uh, you know, something that will be said in the, the text of Hallows is that Harry, Snape, and Voldemort are the abandoned boys, the three boys who found a, a, a home in Hogwarts, even though they did not have a true loving home to go back to. Uh, so there is this incredible soup and this mixture of all of these characters who are being foiled with one another and the uh, the expression of difference between them based on their choices. Uh, you know, there's a beautiful and touching moment right before Harry and Dumbledore leave the observatory, leave the uh, astronomy tower to go and find the Horcrux, when Dumbledore says to Harry that just like his mother, he is unfailingly kind. Uh, and this is, a, a, I think, a, a, a beautiful moment for the character of Harry who over the last two installments, Order and uh, Half-Blood, has been struggling with his own inner nature, has been struggling with, am I a lot like Voldemort? Am I destined to become like Voldemort? Am I becoming bad? And who has a brush with evil when he curses Malfoy, uh, has a brush with vengefulness that he is terrified of that scares him, but we've also seen him make such kind and tender choices throughout Half-Blood Prince. We have seen him be incredibly tender with Hermione uh, as she is just dealing with the feelings that she has for Ron that she does not know how to express. We've seen him be, we've seen him falling in love with Ginny Weasley. We've seen him be totally tender with Slughorn, who is a character dealing with great shame and guilt and who is so scared to give Harry the true memory and reveal what he has done in the past. And Harry, as, as Slughorn is pulling the memory from his head and his hand shakes as he's trying to put it into a bottle, Harry reaches out and steadies his hand. Uh, so we have seen example after example of Harry being truly unfailingly kind. Uh, and so that's just another thing I want to meditate on here at the end. You know, we see Harry often compared to his father up until this point, and you get the sense that Harry is James reincarnated. Snape does it. Lupin does it. Um, Sirius, Sirius calls, calls him, him James. James at one point, and he is constantly being thought of like his father. Hermione says, hey, of course you're a great seeker. Your father was the greatest seeker for Gryffindor until you. So we're constantly being reminded how Harry and James are like, and in this installment, we see how he's like his mom and it is his characteristics of his mother that ultimately win. Yes. Does he use a dark spell against Draco Malfoy? Absolutely. The moral of the story isn't don't ever do dark magic. It's when you do know that it's dark and know that you did something wrong 
and make a plan so that you don't go back there again. Yeah. Which is exactly what happens. Furthermore, it is his relationship with his mother. It is how he, rather he is like his mother and Slughorn's relationship with Harry's mother that ultimately is the way he gets to the memory that he needs to answer the riddle of the Horcruxes. It's because that Slughorn loved Lily. It's because of probably the best dialogue in the whole thing, which did not come from the books. Francis the wee fish. With the fish and with the bowl and Harry saying, you have to be brave for her. Otherwise the bowl will always be empty. That ultimately gets Slughorn to share the true and real memory with Harry. And that's a really interesting aspect to this character. It's not the dashing, handsome, athletic, popular father that wins the day, quote unquote, even though no one wins this one, you know, it is ultimately a a story about loss, but gets the objective, I should say. It's Harry's kindness. It's him reminding Slughorn that his mom's life mattered and that his mom loved Slughorn. Harry can too. You can be redeemed. I'm not doing this, Slughorn, to judge you. I have no business judging you. This isn't to judge you. It's because there's a bigger fight that's more important than your guilt. And I'm giving you the opportunity to be brave. Yeah, I love it. Um, This has been a great conversation. I have learned a lot from you, Derek. I hope uh, that you have learned something from me. I think we've shared some really interesting perspectives in this one. And I'm excited for Hallows. Here at the end, again, things are getting sadder and sadder in this series, so I want to have a little bit of fun. And our friend Dave from Not For The Dinner Table, a podcast that we love, please go and check them out, gave us a fantastic suggestion, which is uh, whether or not we would share what Amortentia would smell like if we were standing near it. That's the very powerful love potion that we are introduced to in the first potions class in this story that smells like what attracts the person who's smelling it. So for Hermione, it smells like fresh cut grass and new parchment and spearmint toothpaste. Uh, so I thought we would share what Amortentia would smell like to us. Would you like to go first, Derek? Uh, yeah, sure. Absolutely. I'll say when I smell, I've got three smells coming from the love potion. Diet Dr. Pepper, juniper berries, and olive oil, garlic, and onion simmering. I smell bourbon, the ocean at night, and cinnamon. And until next time, be kind. Be kind. <laughs>